Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. But this morning, we're actually not going to start in the Psalms. We're going to start in Luke chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at two different ways to pray. Two different ways to pray, starting in Luke chapter 10. Uh, there's a great, there was a great theologian named Herman Bavink, and he has a quote where he says, Prayer is the test and the thermometer of our spiritual life. It's the pulse and the best medication for it. So one of the best ways to tell how you're really doing spiritually, how's your prayer life? Don't worry, I'm not going to make you answer out loud. Uh, and then if you're like, well, I'm kind of struggling, well... The best medication may be your prayer life. So that's what we want to focus on this quarter. Now, let me read this whole passage, and then we'll come back and make some comments on it. Let's start in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And just remember, in the original Greek, no chapter divisions, no verse specifications. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight, and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, a lot of times people will uh, teach the passage at the very end of Luke chapter 10, and they'll do a comparison between Martha and Mary. And that's, that's a good comparison. I've done it myself. Uh, here's the only problem. You come away with this sense of, well, Martha was the worker. Mary was more the contemplative one sitting at the feet of Jesus listening we, and you can, you can over-apply it, so to speak, to say, well, we just all need to be monks and nuns, just you know, try to seclude ourselves and just listen to Jesus' teaching all the time. And the rest of the Bible would obviously teach that's not true. God wants us to be workers. He wants us to be doers. He wants us to apply what we learn. So we're not going to do that today. We're, we're going to make a comparison between Martha and the midnight friend. Now, this is very... When you, when you study the Gospel of Luke, from kind of the end of chapter 9... 
till about chapter 18, Luke ceases to arrange his material chronologically and he arranges it topically. He puts stories together that literally happen but may, may not have happened back to back. And here he's making comparisons about prayer and, and time of the word and things like that. So let's start out and let's think about the things that Martha and the Midnight Friend have in common. The first would be this. They're both presented to us as genuine believers. I mean, if you, Martha's a real person, and if you study what the Scriptures had to say about Martha, she was a sincere, true follower of Christ. She's a real believer. Okay? She's one of the good guys. And the Midnight Friend is a parable, but also, obviously, is taught of a genuine believer. So, they're both true believers. The second thing is, they're trying to minister. Right? They're both trying to serve. They're trying to use their gifts of hospitality to minister to other people. These are active people using their gifts in ministry to serve other people. That's a good thing. Third thing, at some point they run into some kind of problem, or at least a seeming problem. The fourth thing, when they run into this problem, the first thing they do is they go pray. I mean, Martha directly goes and talks to Jesus. A different kind of prayer than what we experience. But then the midnight friend is obviously a parable about prayer. And it's a bold, kind of aggressive prayer both times. And at first, here's the fifth similarity, they don't get what they want immediately, not easily. Now, they have a lot in common. But where we're really going to see the differences that I think will be instructive for our hearts is when we look at the differences between Martha and the Midnight Friend. Okay, that's where the real insight comes from. There's a different focus, there's different feelings, and there's different foundations. So let's, let's look at Martha first, okay? Verse 40. First thing that we notice about Martha, she's distracted. Okay, you see that? But Martha was distracted with all her serving. She was burdened. She was afflicted. She was occupied. She was busy. She was drawn away. She's overburdened. John Wesley said this. She was drawn in different ways at the same time. So many objects of care that it, you hardly know which one to attend to first. You ever feel that way? Okay. She's obsessed with much serving, you could say. Here's William Hendrickson. She's distracted. She's agitated. She literally, the word means, to be drawn or pulled in every direction. She's going to pieces over all the things she imagined she had to do. John MacArthur. She's dragging around. I mean, in modern day vernacular, we would say about Martha, she's running around like a chicken with her head cut off. She's distracted. Overwhelmed. Now, I mean, you would think she would come into the room. Now, she's going to go pray. She's going to go talk to Jesus about her problem. You would think maybe she would come into the room, see Jesus teaching, see everybody else sitting there listening, and maybe it would dawn on her, wait a second. All that I got going on is not that important. The creator of the universe is sitting in my living room teaching the Word. Maybe I ought to learn from my sister and sit down and just marinate. But she doesn't. She's going to pray, which again is a good thing. She talk about her problems. So look at what she says. Lord, did you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. How does Martha feel? How do we often feel? We feel overwhelmed. We feel all alone. You ever felt that way? You may be in the midst of people, but you feel like, you know what? I'm the one really pulling the heavy weight around here. I'm the one working my tail off. We can get a little bit of a martyr's complex, can we not? Look at all the serving I'm doing. When am I going to get some free time? And it, uh, it betrays an air of self-sufficiency. 
I'm over here doing so much. Is anybody paying attention to me? Look at what the Lord Jesus is going to say to her. Verse 41. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. And the word there for worried can also be translated anxious. Again, she's overwhelmed, she's overburdened, too much to do. Can any of you identify with this? And, and what's really going on at some level, I think Martha gives us the picture of the trap that believers, genuine believers like me and you, often fall into, where it's like, I've got my plans, I think they're good plans, I'm trying to do them all, and yes, Jesus, would you just come bless my plans, right? But at the end of the day, I'm a hard worker, I'm a smart person, I'm an independent operator, I'm out here getting the job done, and I just need a little bit of Jesus on the side, and everything would work right. I've made my plans, Lord. Now, if you just show up and bless them, everything will be fine. How's that working out for you? That's Martha. It's too much independence. Even though, again, there's a lot right that she's doing. Now, let's look at the friend at midnight and see what's different about him. Um, the first thing we notice is he's not distracted. He's very determined, right? I mean, he has one goal. A friend has shown up at my house... And this, this would have actually been a very likely story in the ancient Near East. They oftentimes traveled at night because it was so hot during the day. You didn't have hotels and places like that, certainly not in smaller villages. You show up, you come to the house. I'm famished with hunger, you got anything? No, because a lot of times they made enough bread for the day for their family, and that was it. They lived day to day. But he realizes, i got a next-door neighbor that's rich. He might have some extra bread. I know he does. He's determined. He's focused. He's not distracted. He's one task. I know what God has called me to do, and I'm focused on it. The second thing, where Martha felt alone, I'm out here doing all this alone. This man doesn't feel alone. I think you could say he feels aligned. I know that me and my rich neighbor, we're aligned in our purposes. So I'm going to beat on his door. And guess what? When he doesn't answer at first, I'm just going to keep beating. Even when he says no, I'm going to keep beating. Now, now this is really insightful. Tim Keller had a sermon where he said, who in the right mind would wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water? Only a child of a king, right? Because a little child of the king doesn't think of the king primarily as a king, but primarily as daddy. And that's what we're getting here, guys, is a picture of an adopted son coming to his father. Hey, daddy, I'm out here doing the service you told me you wanted me to do. Feed your sheep. And I don't have what I need to do it. I need you to get up and give me some bread. And where, as Martha was anxious, she was worried, she was bothered, this guy's not anxious or worried or bothered. He's persistent. Now, I'm, I'm using the New American Standard this morning. So everybody look together in verse 8, near the end where it says, Yet because of his, I have persistence, he will get up. Does anybody have a different translation with a different word there for persistence? What's that? Impudence. Okay. Impudence. I mean, it's a word that we don't even use much in English. And the word is only used in the Greek this one time. 
And most of the time, in ancient Greek and in modern English, when we do use this word, it's a negative word. Because literally what it means is kind of like arrogant. A shameless kind of persistence. Throwing caution and proper decorum to the wind. Doesn't care about time, place, people. It is hyper-focused on getting this one thing, and it will not take no for answer. It's the desperation of a beggar. But Jesus is praising you here. Now just pause for a second and ask yourself this. Is there anything in your life that you've ever prayed for like this? Is there anything you're praying for this like now? And I really want us to stop and kind of, for a second, try to put ourselves in this story. Just imagine, you're a little villager living in your little house, and you do have a friend, comes at a journey, knocks on the door. Can we stay with you? Sure. you have anything to eat? I don't, but I'll try to get something. You go to the next door neighbor. You knock on the door. Hey, you got any bread in there? The guy says, I can't get up. Don't bother me. What would you do? What would I do? Here's what I'd do. I'd either, I'd either go back to my neighbor and say, hey, I tried. I tried, man. I didn't have bread. I'm letting you stay at my house. Isn't that enough? You woke me up already. And I even went and woke up my neighbor. I tried, but I don't have bread. Just You can fast for 24 hours, right? It's not that big of a deal. Or if I knocked on the first neighbor's home and I was that desperate to feed my buddy, I'd say, well, I'll go to the next door. Why would you stay at one door and just keep beating over and over again. Even when the person inside is saying, don't bother me, stop it, I'm not getting up. I think a couple things going on here. Number one, he knows the traveler needs the food. There's a real need. Right? Did you, I mean, you notice what it says there at the end of verse 8? He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Not what he wants. Whatever he needs is what it says in the ESV. It's a, it's a need. The second thing is, in a sense, he knows this is my job. This is my responsibility. This is my duty. This is the noble task God has given me, so I am hyper-focused on it. I'm like a heat-seeking missile. Number third, he knows there's no other option. Probably in this little village, there's the sense of, hey, everybody else in this village is poor like me. They don't have leftover bread at night. But the rich guy that lives next to me, he got bread. There's no other option. There's no other door to knock on. And the last thing is, he knows his friend will eventually answer. He, he knows. No, I know, I know this guy's heart. His first response may not be great. Keep beating on the door. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, of uh, John uh, 2, the wedding. Right? G- Jesus' mom. Jesus threw out a wine. Woman, what does that have to do with me? It's not my time. You remember, you remember how Mary responded? It's like she knew. Matthew Henry said, sometimes God is better than his word. Matthew Henry said it, not me. <laughs> right? Because Jesus made it like, I'm not going to help you. And you remember what Mary said? Servants, hang around and just do whatever he said. It's like she knew his heart. He's going to help. That's the midnight friend. He knows. This guy in the house, he's my friend. I know him. If I keep beating on the door, he's going to help. That kind of determination. 
Is there anything in your life right now like this that you're praying for? Maybe this is a better question. Is there anything like this in our lives that we ought to be praying for like this? The salvation of a child. Maybe the salvation of a marriage. You got friends that it's like, man, it ain't looking good. This thing's almost over. And barring a miracle, this right call the lawyers. Revival in a church, revival in a nation, right? If if Martha is a picture of kind of an independent believer, I got my plans. I'm kind of overwhelmed with them, but I'm trying my best. And if I could just get a little bit of your blessing, God. The midnight friend, he's fully dependent. He's fully aligned. He's this adopted child. Hey, it's me and you, God. We're on mission together. I'm clear about what you called me to do, and I'm selling out to it. Burn the ships. Now, let's look at the Father. Because really what all this teaching boils down to is your view of God. I think it was A.W. Tozer that said, your view of God more than anything else determines everything about your life. What do you really believe about God? And you know what Martha really believed about God in the depths of her heart and what we're often tempted at least to believe about God? Look back to verse 40 and look at what she said in her own words. Lord, do you not care? You see, the most effective lie Satan has ever told, this is what we looked at. If, you, if you've forgotten, the last time I was here, here's what we talked about. Here's a little reminder. <laughs> is that the most powerful and effective lie that Satan ever told was the insinuation that God doesn't really care for you. To Adam and Eve, right? You know why God's keeping this one tree? Because it's the best tree. And he's trying to keep you down because he doesn't really want you, because he doesn't really care. And that lie, Sinclair Ferguson said, entered the human bloodstream, and we're all stumped with it. We're all tempted at times. It's, guys, don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a testimony. Just think about the last time you were praying for something that was really good, right? It's not like you were praying for a new Ferrari, or God, can I like miraculously lose 20 pounds overnight when I wake up? You were praying for something really good, Right? Like the salvation of a friend, like a healing, and it didn't happen. Didn't you wrestle a little bit with God? Why are you doing this? I don't know. I mean, I got all the good theology, right? I've read all the R.C. Sproul books, but I still don't really. You're tempted to believe God doesn't care. Do you remember the disciples in the boat, Mark chapter 4? They had Jesus. The God of the universe came to hang out with them. He's taking a nap in the boat. But when the storm comes... What did they say to him when they woke him up? Don't you care? Guys, it happened to the disciples, it happened to Martha, it happens to us. We start to really doubt, does God really care? Does he really have my best interest in need? Now, Martha wasn't in a storm on the lake. Martha was in a storm of her own making. All her hustle and bustle. Any of you identify with that? Sometimes I have a busy week. And I'm looking at my calendar, like all these meetings, and I'm like, who planned all these meetings? And then I remember, well, I'm the boss, I planned them. It's my fault. I did this to myself. Good thing is, then you can cancel them too, right? When you plan them. <laughs> but think about the midnight friend. And again, 
Luke's putting all this material together for us. Right after the midnight frame, what does it go into? Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Right. And then verse 11. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Here's what the midnight friend knew and what we have to know deep in our souls. God always, always hears. And He always gives us what's best. He may not give us what we ask for, but I think it was Robert Murray McShane that first said, if God doesn't give you exactly what you're asking for, that's because He's going to give you something better. Because He always gives the best to His children. Guys, this, this is such an important insight. Does it ever bother you? Well, I mean, Jesus tells multiple parables like this. He has multiple little stories and teachings like this. This isn't a one-off. I think it's Luke 18 where he talks about the unrighteous judge, the old lady. I mean, I get this image of her coming with her cane, kind of knocking on the judge's door. Give me justice against my enemy. And the judge is like, I don't care about you. I don't care about God. I'm not giving you. Jesus tells parables like this a lot. Why? At least one reason is Jesus knows there's going to be lots of times in life we're praying, asking for something that seems good to us, and it seems like God's saying, no, I'm not a good father. I'm not a good judge. I'm not a good friend. And what Jesus is saying is, when circumstances seem to scream at you that God is an untrustworthy judge, that he's an unloving friend, that he's an uncaring father, you have to believe, no, 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 no. I know in the depths of my soul. He is trustworthy. He is good. Now, practically, there's the temptation to be like Martha, the Christian chicken with their head cut off, running around, overwhelmed, overburdened, distracted, agitated, anxious. We want to be more like the midnight friend. What's the key? Well, look at the middle section that we just skipped. <laughs> Verse 42, talking about Mary. Only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. I mean, if some of you are really tracking with me, I mean, even as I've been studying this, this is a question I have kind of in a sense asked to myself. It's easy to portray Martha as, i got all these things and it's too much and I'm juggling and plate spinning and it's not working. And then the midnight friend is like laser focused. But it's like, but practically, Olin, I do have multiple responsibilities in life, Right? I'm a father. I'm a husband. I have a job. I serve in the church. And there's just four. And sometimes what we have to know is the one thing, the most necessary thing is I'm a child first. I'm a child of God. Sit at his feet and listen. And that could be a church on Sunday morning and that should be alone. You know, you say, Jesus doesn't show up in my kitchen with his beard, his robe, and his sandals. No, he doesn't. But if we really believe what we say we believe about the Word of God, it's just as good. He's speaking to us, right? I mean, we ought to be devouring this every morning or at some point in the day. I'm not a morning person. Great, do it at night. Just do it. I mean, unless you're in a 24-hour coma. What excuse is there to not spend some of that day listening to the Word of God? But then, notice what Jesus goes right into. The Lord's Prayer, right? When you pray, say, Father, He gives us this model for prayer. Because in prayer, oftentimes, guys, we're tempted to be more like Martha and just say, here's what I care about. Here's what on my heart. And that's not all bad. 
that there's an appropriate way to vent our feelings, frustrations, doubts, fears, whatever it may be to the Lord. But here's the thing. When you do that, just get ready to get rebuked. I mean, did you notice that? Martha went to pray, and she got rebuked. You ever felt that way before? Like they were praying? Totally hypothetical. God, and that argument that my wife and I just had, she really said or did some wrong things, and I just really pray you would, you know, humble her about that. Persevere in that prayer for a while. Where does that usually get you? I'm sorry, Jesus. I'm the sinner. I'm not saying she's a saint, not in a perfected sense, but I need to repent first, right? It's amazing how that happens. So Jesus is trying to say, let me give you a model of prayer so when you pray, you make sure you are aligned. You are praying like an adopted child. You're praying the things that are on my heart first, that my name would be hallowed and honored and glorified, that my kingdom would come, my influence, my power would be released in the world. And then, yes, you can get around to daily necessities like bread. Guys, this is where the Psalms come in. In one sense, we're the book of Psalms. It's 150 different versions of the Lord's Prayer. You understand what I mean by that? I think Athanasius in the 4th century was the first one to say, most of the Bible is God speaking to us. The book of Psalms is where God says, here's how you speak to me. And so why is it so important to learn? Take the Psalms, read them. In a sense, I don't know if some of y'all were here on a Sunday night, two or three weeks ago, Jim Alexander was preaching. He said he'd been going through some Psalms and he had made them his own. That's good. I want to make the Psalms my own. So that when I pray them, they don't feel weird to me. But my heart feels totally aligned with praying what the Psalms pray. But that takes time. That takes repetition. That takes slowing down, going deep, meditating, journaling, praying, worshiping. That's what we're going to do this quarter. One commentator said this, It is possible to be industrious in life and still be poor. Right? We probably have heard stories of that. Somebody's a hard worker. They're just in bad circumstances and they just kind of stay poor their whole life. But it's impossible to be industrious in prayer and be spiritually poor. Isn't that encouraging? Give your life to prayer and you'll be spiritually rich. Philip Brooks said, prayer isn't overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of His highest willingness. So, to sum up, maybe the key practically to making all this work is a dual belief that the midnight friend had. And you've got to have both. Look at the end of verse 6. I have nothing to set before him. Do we really feel the depths of our spiritual poverty if God doesn't show up and bless the work of our hands? Right? We don't feel it enough. That's where so much of the right kind of prayer comes from. I mean, Martha's kind of like, hey, I'm doing a lot. I just need a little help. Midnight friend says, I got nothing. I'm a zero. Nada. If you don't show up, all my efforts are nothing. They're a waste. You can experience this in lots of ways, but maybe the clearest way is go have an evangelistic conversation with a known unbeliever. Like somebody that's kind of passionate about being an unbeliever. You know, you know people like that? 
was having a conversation with somebody like that one time, and at the end of it, this person's a friend and, and pretty smart. And the conversation got a little passionate. Not angry passionate, but there was, you know, some emotion. And then he said, I can't defeat any of your intellectual arguments. No, i got to be honest. In the half-second pause he took before he finished his sentence, I felt pretty good about myself, right? And he said, I still don't believe what you believe. And then I felt like a loser. Because unless the wind of the Spirit blows, I don't care how smart I am, how well I argued. And again, you see that in a thousand ways. I have nothing to set before him. And then the end of verse 8. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. That's our Father. Our Father will always get up eventually and give us as much as we need. Not as much as we want, but as much as we need. How can we know this for sure? Because the Lord Jesus Christ got up off of his throne to come to earth and give us all that we need, including his very life, blood, and soul. Flip back really quickly to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Here's where Luke's travel narrative starts, so to speak. And look at what he says. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And I think there's one translation that says, he set his face like flint. I mean, Jesus was not distracted. He was determined. Jesus was not anxious. Although in the garden, he did pray pretty shamelessly, didn't he? Hey, Father, I don't want to do it. If there's any way out, here's my desires. Yet not my will but thine. He, he was totally aligned with the Father because he was not an adopted son. He was the one true son. And he said, if this is what you're calling me to do, Father, even though it kills me, I'll do it. On the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was thrown not into a storm of his own making, but into a storm of our own making, the storm of God's wrath. And it burned itself out in his heart. And sometimes we feel alone down here on planet Earth like Martha, right? I'm alone, I'm overwhelmed, it's just too hard. Remember Elijah felt that way in the Old Testament, remember that? I'm all alone, God, it's so hard, I'm trying to do the right thing. Just kill me. None of us, none of us has ever truly been alone. Like the Lord Jesus was alone on the cross. I mean, this was a cosmic loneliness of hell totally cast off. An eternal suffering and an eternal soul. What must that have been? Only he truly had to do his ministry all alone. Why did he do it? Because he really, really does care for us. And so, whatever you're going through right now, whatever I'm going through, I know there are situations where it's like, hey God, I feel like I prayed 12 good prayers over the last months and none of them been answered. You ever felt that way? I'm trying to hang on down here, Father, by faith. But circumstantially, it seems like you're screaming at me that you don't care. 
But I do have this one giant thing in human history, the life, death, and resurrection of your son for my eternity. So I'm convinced you do care. So therefore, I will shamelessly persist in obeying you, even when it feels like you're killing me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us the confidence of the midnight friend that's rooted in gospel truth, that you are our adopted daddy. God, will we have the same kind of boldness, persistence, focus, determination, because Christ was so bold and persistent and determined to save us. Now in our little smaller ways, make us not sinless, but but faithful, sincere, genuine, devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, let our prayer life... Lord, I I don't know where... where, Uh, the devotional life of of all these people are. But Lord, you do. And Lord, whether it's strong or it's weak or it's languishing, Lord, I pray for all of us that it would be strengthened. That our prayer life, our time in the Word would go deeper with you. Make us into the men and women of prayer you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.